the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I first saw the book that uh, you're not as crazy as I think. And some are thinking, yeah, and you're crazier than I think. <laughs> and, well, I'm not so sure about the content, particularly in the um, talking point sheet that came along with it, the opening line of which is, would you choose God over truth? And as I as I look at it, I don't see this as necessarily a mutually exclusive or an either or proposition. But in fact, it being one and the same. That said, as I got through several of the chapters, as we talk about how we define truth, how we arrive at it, and then how we share it, one observation made by the author of this book, Randall Rouser, caught my attention. And this is a question I think all of us ought to be compelled, if not required, to ask of ourselves in in the silence of our prayer room or when we have that alone time just with ourselves. And we think about not only our relationship with God and how we view him and how he has an opinion of us, which we clearly can delineate from Scripture, but then to how others see us. Now, here's the real test. As you think about your friends and your acquaintances and your family members and the manner and fashion in which you have shared your faith or stood up for the sake of the gospel or given the answer for the hope that lies within, do your acquaintances, are they, are they awed by your faith or are they perhaps appalled by what some might consider to be either your ignorance or your arrogance? That's an important question I think all of us as believers ought to be compelled to answer. And then, dependent upon um, the answer that we arrive at, maybe come full circle into understanding more about what truth is, how we arrive at it, and how we apply it. At the core, that is the topic of the book tonight. Uh, Randall Rouser is a professor in addition to being the author of a number of best-selling books, including his latest, You're Not As Crazy As I Think, he is Associate Professor of Historical Theology at Taylor Seminary in Edmonton, Canada, author of a number of best-selling books, and joins us now to uh, to help us go through this process of what it exactly means to, to arrive at truth and then how we go about applying. And, and uh, Professor Rouser, thanks so much for being with us on the program tonight. Well, thanks for having me, Craig. Good to be with you. You know, first, I think we we need to get to the core of one issue here. And, you know, we're, we're having this conversation on the radio in the San Francisco Bay Area. So obviously this issue of truth, what it is, how we define it, is one that is, is greatly debated in, uh, in the circles, not only around the coffee groups, perhaps, uh, but certainly at some of the uh, locations of higher learning, like uh, Cal State Berkeley and others, University of California, rather, Berkeley. Um, we talk about truth. Is truth something that, like time, we can define and, and accurately, ultimately measure? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of confusion about truth. I remember I was giving a talk once, and uh, I wanted actually was talking about the Da Vinci Code way back when that was the big thing. And I wanted to talk about historical truth and how the Da Vinci Code gets it wrong. And right away, someone puts up his hand. I could tell it was a university student, and it turned out he was a university student from an English department of a secular university. His first question was, what is truth? Well, and that just shows that there's a lot of skepticism 
in a lot of different contexts in society over what truth is and whether we can even know it. In its core, I think defining truth is actually pretty straightforward. Um, we can first of all define it in terms of statements. A statement is true if it accurately describes reality. So if, if I say Edmonton is north of San Francisco, that statement is true insofar as it accurately describes reality, which it does. But truth can also be something more profound than that, although that is important. Jesus himself, in John 14:6, of course, describes himself as the truth. And that shows that truth can also be related to persons. And in that context, as Christians, I think we want to be people of truth, meaning that our lives match up to Jesus our lives correspond to Jesus in something analogous to that true statement matching up to reality. Early on in your book, you make a statement that I think would set a good percentage of of evangelicals, or certainly those that would would label themselves in the fundamentalist category of Christian faith, perhaps on their heels. You you talk about the necessity to uh, not only listen and learn from others, which is something that we don't always do a real good job of, particularly when said others have uh, differing worldviews or opinions that are really uh, diametrically opposed to ours. But then you talk about rethinking our truth paradigm. Uh, Elaborate on that point, would you please? Um, can you say it again? You, you talk in the book about rethinking the necessity for us to not only listen and learn from others, but also to rethink our truth paradigm. What do you mean okay. by that? Well, I mean, simply the, the challenge to, to be willing to ask the question, could I be wrong about something? And I mean, that's, you know, when, when I get into a disagreement with my wife about which one of us left the fridge door open, even that kind of question can get heated because each one of us doesn't want to admit it was the other or that it was maybe us. When you get into deep questions about the meaning of life, it can become, in that case, very sort of frightening, unsettling to think I could possibly be wrong about some pretty important things. And you only need to look around you to see how many people believe fundamentally different things about the world to realize there's a good likelihood that I've got at least some things wrong And I need to be willing to consider and ask, where have I possibly got things wrong? Do we also, in that that consideration, as as we're rethinking our truth paradigm, need to maybe differentiate between the the big truths and the little truths? I mean, for example, uh, the point of leaving the refrigerator door open, uh, you know, dependent upon your relationship with your spouse, sometimes at the end of the day, it it might be be to your advantage just to simply surrender that one, at least you end up sleeping on the couch. (laughs) That said, there are other cases where we have to look at real key truths that we as believers maybe don't have to surrender per se, but ought at least to be open to engage in healthy dialogue. I mean, it it seems to me that there's a good percentage of of believers, evangelicals in particular, that that, that tend to want to just kind of believe what we believe because we believe it. And it's almost as if, particularly from, from those that are on the outside looking in, in other words, the non-believers, that, that we tend to be kind of folks that, that, that will check our intellect at the church door. I think often we, we view things like argument as, as being always negative. You know, so you sort of get the picture of the spouses fighting and one ends up on the couch, and that's an argument. But the root word from Latin for the word argue is to make clear or to shine forth. 
So in their best form, an argument as a reasoned, careful dialogue between two people who have very different opinions on something, in its best form, that brings light to the situation because two people understand where the other one is coming from. And they may ultimately either have a deeper conviction after that argument about their own views, or they may have changed some of their views. But either way, people are going to grow through open dialogue with others. One of the big challenges here, and I'm going to have you elaborate on this point and help clarify, shed some light on it, in fact, when we come back after a brief time out. And that is the notion that there are those who who look at others who oppose our viewpoints or our opinions or our values. We might hold that they have a, a differing worldview, for example, or a differing moral values. Um, that we, we tend to couch them in terms of, of, of immediate dismissal because we put them in the enemy camp. Uh, they see those who oppose our opinions or values as enemies. We're going to talk a bit about that and how dangerous that can be, particularly in the process of not just being truth seekers, but also truth sharers. Our conversation with Professor Randall Rouser continues. A look at your not as crazy as I think dialogue in a world of loud voices and hardened opinions. We'll get to uh, perhaps some of your voices and opinions, too, as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. Try to take the fear out of the cognitive approach to our faith. Uh, we are not called to check our intellect at the church door, though oftentimes I think there's a good percentage of believers that do. Or when confronted by someone who comes from a differing worldview, uh, a different life experience, and may challenge our faith, you know, we, we kind of hide under the, well, we believe what we believe because we believe it. But we don't understand why we believe it or even how we came to that conclusion. Oftentimes, it, it's not even our own faith. It's the faith of our fathers. Not always a bad thing, per se. But we should never be afraid of of engaging in good intellectual give and take, um, particularly so as we're trying to better understand not only who we are in our relationship with Christ, but then, too, to be able to share our truth about the gospel and who Jesus is with others. Toward that end, our conversation tonight with the author and Professor Randall Rouser. The book is called You're Not As Crazy As I Think, Dialogue in a World of Loud Voices and Hardened Opinions. Uh, come back to this point, if you would, that we touched on, uh, Professor, just before the break, the idea that oftentimes we kind of we kind of recoil in the thought of getting engaged in dialogue with others that have opinions that sometimes are diametrically opposed to ours because we, we kind of tend to couch them and ultimately dismiss them because we see them as our enemies. Is that problematic? Yeah, I think that's a, a real problem, especially when you have a pluralistic society, a society where people hold very many different views, because you just have the practical question, how are we going to get along? Now, I remember I was at a, a conference, just to give you a very concrete example. I was at a conference a few months ago that I got into a conversation with um, a young man who was finishing his PhD in philosophy at Notre Dame University, so a very intelligent fellow. And we talked about the historical resurrection, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. He had grown up in a Christian home, but he had looked at the, the evidence for the resurrection, and he ultimately lost his faith over it. Now, the interesting thing is I've looked at the same evidence, and my faith is stronger today than ever. But through that conversation, I had to wrestle with the question, how does somebody very intelligent look at the same evidence that I'm looking at and draw different conclusions? And, and that's the kind of puzzle that can really shake people up. 
So we often have a way of restoring the comfort level when we encounter people like that. We can label them. The easiest thing to do is to label them. So to explain their their lack of, of agreeing with us, either from them somehow being not intelligent, but that didn't work in this case because this guy was a PhD. The other option is to say, well, they're wicked somehow. They're just rejecting, refusing the evidence that's before them. The problem with that response is sometimes when you really get to know people, you just can't dismiss them simply as being wicked. And that just means that often things are a lot more complicated than we recognized. So we label them to ultimately dismiss them as opposed to engaging them, which I think would suggest perhaps that we ourselves don't feel like we're on all of that firm foundation. That goes back to this this notion that oftentimes we, we know what we believe, we just don't know why we believe it. Well, and, and that's the sad truth, that often we would prefer to have a, a faith that we keep safe from everything, but which is not mature, rather than to go on and wrestle with things and come into a deeper faith. I, I had one student once come to me in, uh, at seminary. She was teaching an adult Sunday school class. She wanted to look at the historical evidence for Jesus in the Sunday school class, but one of the students said, we don't want to look at that evidence because we know of a couple students who went off to university and lost their faith. Now, that's just not an adequate response. You, you mentioned First uh, Peter 3, uh, 15, that we need to have a reason for the hope that lies within us. Paul said, if we are wrong about the resurrection, we are to be pitied most of all people. We can never be afraid of looking at the truth. And we don't have to be afraid of looking at the truth. We should always look and consider the evidence, whatever it may be. Are we afraid, perhaps, to look at the truth? Because, again, we're just not secure enough in it, and so we're afraid that, that any um, uh, reasonable uh, examination might perhaps shake our own faith, and therefore we'd just rather avoid it? Yeah, I think very often we, we have to recognize that to, to, to consider these basic questions about faith, about worldview, they can shake up all sorts of things. For me, as a, as a professor at a Christian seminary, to honestly wrestle with these kinds of questions means I could be putting my job on the line. It means I could be putting my relationships in church on the line, relationships with family. So all of those kinds of things can make people very fearful that they don't even want to go down that road. Uh, so then I'm wondering, uh, toward that end, Professor, is, is part of the challenge then that we have as believers in, in the way and sometimes, and again, not to suggest that this is universal about all, but I, th- I think there's a fair percentage of us that, that kind of shrink back from engaging in the give and take and dialogue, uh, maybe because as we've, as we've arrived at our own faith conclusions, that it's been based on what might have been for ourselves or, or, on beha- or, or done on our behalf by others, kind of a, a construction of our own truth as opposed to uh, the dis- pure discovery of it? Does that question make sense? Yeah, that, that we, we, can, we can choose ultimately to have a, a sort of simplified faith rather than to, to face faith in all its complexity. Because you can construct your own truth based solely on your, your worldview or your life experience. I mean, oftentimes as, as a, a broadcaster and broadcast journalist, you know, this issue of bias comes up as well. We need to be uh, unbiased in our reporting of the news. And yet the problem with that is that it, it discounts uh, some very important facts here that include that when we look at something, we always will look at it through the, the lens of our own life 
experience. In other words, if we came from a household where we had abusive parents and dad was an alcoholic, uh, there might be a predetermination that that's the way most relationships are. And so maybe in in our worldview, because of our limited life experience, we don't allow for other truths or a broader truth because we're very limited. Does this become the same thing then when it becomes applicable to our faith? That, for example, if you've never, I'll go on a limb here, if you've never seen a miraculous healing, you conclude that they don't exist because you've simply constructed, quote unquote, your truth based on your limited life experience as opposed to going through the discovery process. Well, yeah, like in, in that case, you could have all sorts of reasons for saying there are no healings. Maybe the only experience you had with healing was a charlatan, somebody that was identified as being a charlatan. I mean, I know so many people, their assessment of Christianity has been skewed by the kinds of representations of it that they've met. So when I meet somebody who's really angry at Christianity, who's really antagonistic, the first thing they want me to know is that they're an atheist and they hate God or whatever. The first thing I want to ask is, what is it in their background that led them to have this kind of anger? You know, it's a lot of people, a lot of Christians, the first thing they're going to do is pull back and try to avoid those kinds of people. On the contrary, I want to get to know those people and know what it is that drives them. Now, now you mentioned the bias thing. I think we have to keep two things in balance here. On the one hand, we really need to be careful of our confirmation bias. Now, that's the tendency that everyone has to assess positively evidence that supports our position and to disregard evidence that doesn't support our position. Since we're in in an election year, just think about the average political, 30-second political attack ad. Classic case of a confirmation bias. Everything is painted as rosy for one candidate and totally negatively for the other candidate. Rarely is life like that. So we really need to be careful of our own confirmation bias. At the same time, we should never think we can completely escape it. We do, as you said, always come to reality from a perspective, and we would be naive to think we can ever completely remove ourselves from it. See, this is where I think intellectual integrity all of a sudden now gets challenged because, as you point out in one of the chapters in the book, uh, you know, in the end, uh, those that we disagree with may ultimately not necessarily be ignorant, idiotic, insane, or immoral as sometimes we wish to uh, to characterize or paint them as. Because, again, it's easy if we couch them in that category to dismiss them instead of allowing ourselves to be challenged and ultimately to defend the faith that we have. We're going to come back to more of this conversation as we're visiting today with um, uh, Professor Randall Rouser. The book is called You're Not As Crazy As I Think, Dialogue in a World of Loud Voices and Hardened Opinions. When we come back, dissecting the tendency that some of us have to uh, to utilize what we'll call urban legends in an effort to try and tell the truth and the intellectual dishonesty that that can bring about. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. Uh, Randall Rouser is a professor, in addition to being the author of a number of best-selling books, including his latest, You're Not As Crazy As I Think. You make a point inside the book that caught my attention only because I happened to be just this weekend watching a, a nationally known televangelist. I won't say any names, but he's based in um, Texas, and uh, has an admittedly uh, thin uh, curriculum of Yate. That said, um, he, in, in illustrating a point that he was sharing, 
uh, told a story about some incidents that happened to some connected people related to 9-11 and the tragedy that unfolded in New York City. And, and as I heard him sharing the story, I just kind of went, OK, point A, point B, point C, connect the dots and thought, if that isn't an outright, absolutely ridiculous fabrication in order to underscore the point that he was trying to share, which in fact could have easily stood on its own. And you talk about in the book, I think, a similar example of this notion of using urgent legends in order to try and tell the truth. What's problematic about that? Oh, that is that is a real problem within the church. The church is... There are so many urban legends that get propagated by evangelicals. Now, I mean, we're, I don't know that we're that different than the wider culture, because everybody loves urban legends. But if we proclaim ourselves to be people of the truth, then it becomes a real problem. So I, I do mention, for example, one in, in, the, in the book about a, a missionary who was in Africa and came back to his home church in Michigan, and he reported that 26 angel guards had protected him in the forest in, in Africa, and that was on the same night when 26 people in Michigan were having a prayer service for him. Well, this story is told, I've heard it two times from the pulpit. The problem is it's a complete fabrication. If we need to go to urban legends to support what God is doing in the world, that discredits us. Yeah, the, the, I mean, the notion of... If somebody who knows it's an urban legend hearing that, and they think that's the best you can come up with? Well, that's what I thought. When I, when I heard this sermon on Sunday and I was listening to the story that was being told and just quickly connected the dots, setting aside for a moment the point that he was trying to make and just connecting the dots, I thought to myself, if anybody who's a non-believer listens to this and is aware of any of the facts, even at the periphery, is going to say to themselves, this guy is a bold-faced liar. The notion of telling half-truths to make a whole-truth point just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, you know, Craig, it's like the when you're on the used car lot and the used car salesman comes up to you and says, never winter driven, and he starts saying all this stuff about this car. Is any of that true? Well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But if if the person believes that guy's only saying things to get you to buy the car, that's going to discredit him. When, Chris, when, when non-Christians look at Christians in the same way and think we're just like salespeople, we'll say whatever we can to close the deal, that discredits us as well. There's another point to all of this that you you dive into in the book that I think helps to uh, to challenge the, the 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 and stretch the intellectual um, integrity of believers, and that is the notion that that sometimes uh, not everything is as it seems to be. Uh, tell the uh, the red Corvette story, would you? By the way, when I read the story and got into it, I thought I know exactly where he's going with this, and of course, it's exactly where you lead us. Yeah. Um, that story haunted me for a few years, so I thought I would use it for good. Um, several years ago, in the mid-1990s, my wife and I came to church, and rather than allow this to become an urban legend, I'll be specific. This was Christian Life Assembly in Greater Vancouver area. We came into the church. It was, the parking lot was packed. There was one spot I saw, so I pull up the car, and lo and behold, a red Corvette is parked diagonally, taking up two spots. So... We had to park down the street. I was so incensed that this guy would do this on a Sunday morning that I wrote a note, left it on his windshield, um, you know, a brotherly uh, imprecation. That yeah, you're going to admonish him not to take up two parking spaces. Yes, yeah. exactly. So uh, forgot about it. Well, a week later, after the, the worship in the, in the church, the pastor, Pastor Brent, he, said, he starts describing how there was a little old lady in church whose car broke down, so she had to borrow her son's Corvette. Uh-oh. 
Then he says she broke her. She had just broken her hip, and she was having trouble getting uh, getting out of the car because it had such long doors. She had to swing the doors way out, so she parked at the edge of the parking lot diagonally so she wouldn't hit the next car over when she swung the door out. Well, you know, my wife just turned beet red, and I was saying, "Act casual." <laughs> Who would have thought that a little old lady with a broken hip was driving that Corvette? The lesson I took out of that is. Never be too quick to judge a situation. We really often don't know where people are coming from. We have all our assumptions about the way the world is, but often those assumptions are wrong. And in my case, they were critically wrong. You know, and the amazing thing about that story is that I think oftentimes we, we, we have a horrible case of amnesia when it comes to our own faith journey. Uh, we assume that everybody ought to be at the same intellectual and faith position as we are. And we for oftentimes forget the process that we ourselves went through. I mean, are there aspects of my faith that is clearer and stronger and has a better understanding today than it had five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago? Absolutely. We look at somebody else who doesn't believe as we do and we assume that they're evil, that they're under the control of Satan, that they're ignorant, that just we think of this list of awful things about them, not realizing that, you know what, they're probably just on a different position in their faith journey or or perhaps even if they've begun their faith journey at all. So often we can, you're right, Like we're, we're just uncharitable. We forget about where we were. In fact, I have a friend who, he was the director of a homeless shelter for, for a, about a year. And then he left that job. And a couple of years later, he found himself in the downtown again. And he was looking at all these homeless people. And he suddenly realized where he used to look at them with compassion, now he looked at them with disdain mm. because he hadn't been around them. And he forgot where they're at in life and and the kind of compassion he needs to have for them so often we're in the same place you know i think well i've i've grown up mature you know in my christian walk why haven't you grown up and like you say we forget that we were in that same place you quote richard dawkins a number of times in the book in fact i've had him on the show we've we've had some interesting give and take at the end of the day uh he had his opinion i had mine uh, you, you mentioned the fact, and, and this is what caught my attention, that, that he's, uh, he's baffled and astonished about my faith. And I, I will be honest with you, uh, Randall, as I've talked with him and heard his opinions and, and read some of his books, uh, as, as much as he's astonished and baffled by my faith, I am at his lack of, you know, lack of same. I, and yet, I, I don't think we should ever be fearful of engaging these people because that, that exercise of our own understanding of the truth and how we arrived at it. I think is critically important, and at the very least, it will demonstrate to the people that we are trying to share our faith with that we've got intellectual integrity. I think not not everybody that you disagree with is going to be nice, and I think Richard Dawkins is a great a great example of someone who often, in public debate and dialogue, can be quite condescending and rude. Agreed. But the first thing I would just say is, is Christians should not reply in kind. And, you know, I I do think, uh, I mean, he does have a genuine perplexity about Christians. And I do think that that does reflect something of of his own categories that they're too simplistic. That he tends to dismiss anybody who disagrees with him as a faith head. I mean, this is the term he uses. You know, anyone who has a, a religious faith is a faith head. And that's just this dismissive, insulting term. But if he, that's the way he thinks, then when he meets an intelligent faith head, he just doesn't know what to do with them or how to categorize them. 
And I guess that kind of takes us full circle to the point that we had made earlier, and that is that, you know, uh, this notion that if somebody doesn't think or believe the way we do, uh, we shouldn't immediately go in and uh, assume that they are uh, evil or uh, working for the devil and things of this sort, uh, that that everyone that we, uh, you know, find a point of disagreement with uh, over who God is and our faith and how mankind came into being, whatever the point might be, that these people are not always ignorant or idiotic or insane or immoral. They may just have uh, a, a different approach. They may not simply be as, as mature in their faith walk if they've even begun it. You know, there's a great illustration in uh, Harry Blamer's book, The Christian Mind, where he says, the Christian mind will look at a courtroom and say, the judge that has sat on that bench over those 40 years may ultimately be the most sinful person ever in the court because we don't know the human heart. And the, the sobering question for us is to ask those questions about ourselves, not just always focus on other people, but ask, where am I in my faith? Have I tested my own faith? Have I seen that it's genuine or others confirming it? Uh, there, there needs to be a lot more soul in, introspection, because often we wanted to find ourselves over against other people to make ourselves feel better, and that can be a dangerous position to take. And not to, um, you know, group think is an easy thing to do. Uh, it could also be very dangerous. Look at the Branch Davidians, David Koresh. I mean, we can go on with lists of these these types where we just suddenly, we, we are with, quote-unquote, like-minded people. Uh, but sometimes the, the decision process with some of these people may not may not be existent at all. Can you speak to that point? Well, I would, I would say that it's a very dangerous position to be in. I mean, those are the extreme cases. To be sure. But but it is nonetheless a dangerous position to be in if you only interact with people that share a very narrow set of views with you. I mean, it's important to always be seeking to develop friendships, relationships with other people. Over In the last year, I've spoken twice at the Edmonton Atheist Society. I tell you, you get a lot of different views there that I wouldn't hear typically in seminary, and it's refreshing and challenging. So, I mean, I try to do those things to expand my horizons, and I think that's something we all need to strive to do. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, I think that as we began our conversation tonight, Randall, if we're fearful of engaging in that kind of give and take, it probably says more about our our own lack of, of intellectual and spiritual integrity than it does about the others, wouldn't it? Yeah, I, th- I think one thing I'd, I'd just like to say is a, a word about doubt, because many people are very afraid of doubt. If I begin to dialogue with other people and have doubts... The one thing I like to say is, imagine two people, they're crashed in the woods in the middle of winter, there's a lot of snow. The one guy says, I can't feel any of my body parts anymore, um, but I feel great. And the other guy says, I got pain in all my hands and feet. Well, it's the second guy that's healthy. The first guy, frostbite has already set in. But the second guy that has the pain is the one that's healthy. And I think a lot of people, when they have doubts about their faith, that's a sign of a healthy spiritual faith, that they're having those kinds of questions, that they're wrestling with their faith. And God is big enough to handle that doubt. And you see the doubt of uh, the, the issue of struggle with this issue from you know, doubting Thomas in the upper room to the totality. You know, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. And I think we have to understand that, it, that it's a journey, to be sure. Uh, that truth, as we pointed out earlier, is, is not something that we construct, but rather that we have to discover. And then along that, that process here, uh, to, to, to be awed by our faith is something that we ought to strive to do for for others to be awed by our faith as opposed to be uh, simply appalled by our ignorance or our arrogance. I appreciate the give and take on the program tonight, Randall. It's a great book, and I hope we get a chance to visit with you again. 
Thanks for having me, Craig. The book again called Simply You're Not As Crazy As I Think, Dialogue in a World of Loud Voices and Hardened Opinions. And as I said from the very get-go, first I thought, oh, gee, no, this is going to be something that we don't want to, we don't want to shake people's faith. In fact, it's good sometimes when our faith is shaken to the core and remains yet unshaken. The book, by the way, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also get information on Randall's website at Randall Rouser. That's Randall with one L, Randall Rouser, R-A-U-S-E-R.com. You're not as crazy as I think. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. A recent survey conducted by Thomson Reuters of working professional women across the country discovered three top concerns shared by most working women. Concerns over the glass ceiling, equal pay, and work-life balance. Perhaps to that list we could add things like the challenge of building a support network and fear of failure in a male-dominated business world. After all, the men seem to have the good old boys network. How come the ladies don't have a good old girls network? Well, with some insights and answers to this question, we're joined now by a very special guest, Lisa Lambert. Lisa is managing partner with the Wesley Group. Prior to that, she served as vice president at Intel Capital, and she's the founder of Upward, uniting professional women, accelerating relationships and development. Lisa, great to have some time with you today. Thank you. Thank you. I'm looking forward to the discussion. What do you think about that list? Uh, Reuters determining that a lot of professional women today are not only met with challenges of the glass ceiling, equal pay, work-life balance, but then, too, this challenge of the fear of failure in a male-dominated world and the challenge of building a support network. I think it's absolutely right. In fact, that was the basis of the conception of the idea for Upward. I started it in 2013 for that very reason. Um, not only the Reuter study, but McKinsey and others have done studies that show that women are disadvantaged in all of those aspects. But one of the biggest ones is the lack of access to informal networks. And so in informal networks, you get access to mentors and sponsors, and you yourself just become more visible because you're connecting with the people that are decision makers and you're building rapport and building relationship and all that matters when a job opportunity comes up and a decision maker has to choose. They're going to choose the person they have the rapport with, the relationship they've gotten to know, and they're not going to choose the person that they haven't. And if women are excluded from those uh, informal networks, then they're going to be disadvantaged. So it is absolutely true. And that's the genesis of Upward, uh, the idea around having a global networking organization for executive women. And it's part of the goal here, too, Lisa, to kind of, I guess, face reality head on. And I ask that question because typically in perhaps a somewhat of a prejudicial fashion, um, society will say, well, if women want to advance today, they have to do it through education, hard work, sacrifice, putting their nose to the grindstone, things of that sort. And yet when we see men succeed, we'll oftentimes say, well, he's just taking advantage of the good old boy network. Is this in part recognizing the value that it's, yes, all about hard work and sacrifice and dedication, but then, too, about the value of networking and relationships? Absolutely. I mean, you, you need to perform. I mean, that's the baseline. I mean, the very minimum, you need to perform. And I think women are, are very effective at that. I mean, they're heads down in their work group doing their job, and they do that consistently. Women have lots of other responsibilities and duties that they take very seriously, like you know, being a, a wife and being a mother and being involved in 
the lives uh, that entail being a wife and a mother, you know, and so women do care about that. And so they really do focus their time on being effective at their job. And often the networking piece gets jettisoned. It gets put aside, set on the side burner because you just don't have the free time. And I think what a lot of women are beginning to realize and was the epiphany moment for me when I started Upward is that that's something you can't put on the side. You have to be involved in the informal networks and formal networks that make you visible, that make you relevant, that tell people your story. Because really, you know, it comes down to it. The people that care about your career most are you and your mother, you know, and not, <laughs> and not the folks that are around you that you may be competing with for jobs. So you have to be involved. You have to be engaged. And I think for women, it's, it's more of a challenge. Uh, I think that the network is the lifeblood of a career. And if you're not spending half of your time on networking, building relationships, making yourself visible, telling people your story and telling them what you want in terms of your career, then you're not going to have much of a career. And I think that's a, an area that women, we all need to work on, which is why I started Upward. And on the Upward website, and folks can get more information there by going to upwardwomen.org. That's upwardwomen.org. You kind of summarize it in, in three tiers, meet up, build up, and move up. Help us better understand how those goals all fit into what women can expect to experience when they go to an Upward event. Yeah, so meetups are really the formats that we have for our programs. What Upward does uh, primarily, and this is how we were started, was bringing together executive women. We have nearly 4,000 executive women members across the globe. We actually have seven chapters. The Bay Area chapter is our largest, but we're expanding to new geographies, domestic and international, for folks, for purposes of bringing a larger community together. The more vibrant and large the community is, the more you can leverage it to help advance your career. And so the meetups are a physical way for us to engage, right? We do topical discussions, we do workshops, we do seminars and clinics. Uh, it's a way for members in a locale, you know, whether it's the Bay Area chapter or the New York chapter or the Chicago chapter, to come together with expert speakers to learn something important and to network. And every one of our uh, venues, our events, we always have a full hour of networking before and after because that is a big part of building your, you know, extending your reach and building a broad portfolio of people that you can tap um, as you need them in your career. And toward that end, the Bay Area chapter, I understand, Lisa, will be having its third annual Upward Dinner event that will be coming to the San Jose Fairmont Hotel on Thursday, February the 9th. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so this is our annual uh, dinner. We do each year a big event, which in, which includes all of our upward members. We certainly invite all of our upward members. And it's the one opportunity where the different chapters and the different locations can all come together, uh, meet one another, really get inspired by our speakers. We've had some amazing speakers in the past. Carol Bartz uh, was a speaker for our first inaugural event. Uh, she was CEO of Autodesk and Yahoo. Uh, Sally Krawcheck was a speaker for us. She was former CEO of a number of large investment banks, uh, Wall Street career. And this year we have a panel of great speakers, CEOs, entrepreneurs that are going to be speaking at our event. Uh, something we've never done before. We generally have, uh, you know, a big corporate speaker who's been CEO of a large publicly traded company. But this year, we've got Julie Hartz, who's the founder and CEO of Eventbrite, Britt Moran, who's the founder and CEO of Britt & Co., and Miriam Nafasi, who's the founder and CEO of Mintit. So all very accomplished people, all have been on the most powerful women's Forbes list. 
and uh, they're going to come and speak to our members, uh, get them motivated, get them inspired. You know, how do you build a billion-dollar market cap company? That's what these women have done, and that's what we're going to be talking about at the event. So a big part of the evening sounds like connecting and mentoring and toward that uh, toward that degree for those eavesdropping on our conversation that say, you know, Lisa, this sounds like exactly what I've been looking for. Is this dinner coming up on Thursday, February the 9th open to the public? And if so, what can folks do to order tickets? Yeah, so... The membership for Upward, and it is required that you be an Upward member before you attend our events, uh, but the profile for the members are you have to be a director level, VP level, or C-level uh, woman executive. So that is a bit of a limited demographic, uh, but we did it for reason. Uh, what we find, if you just look at the U.S., women do enter the workforce at large numbers. Uh, you know, S&P 500 companies, Fortune 500 companies, generally somewhere between 45 and 50% of the professional workforce at that entry level are women. Uh, we're graduating at more uh, higher levels at each level of degree, from the associate all the way up to a doctorate. But what happens is once they get into the workforce, they don't make it to the top for some of the reasons that we talked about earlier, you know, lack of informal networks, lack of sponsors, lack of mentors. And so I specifically targeted the senior executive uh, demographic for the reason of getting more women in those senior positions and the CEO positions and the board positions so that we have more influence um, and more ability to bring up women behind us. So that does limit the scope a bit. So if you are in that demographic, you're an executive woman uh, working in a professional world, not just uh, tech startups uh, or or large companies, but professionals like attorneys and financiers, uh, et cetera, consultants are all qualified. So that's really the only restriction. Uh, We've sold 550 uh, tickets so far. Uh, We have capacity for 600-ish, 600, 620. So we have a little bit more room in the next two and a half weeks um, if there's somebody that fits that demographic and would be interested in joining us. And, of course, a great opportunity to get more details about this upcoming third annual Upward Dinner event coming to the San Jose Fairmont Hotel Thursday, February the 9th. As Lisa mentioned, you do need to be a member to participate. And to find out more about Upward and how to become a member, simply go to upwardwomen.org. That's upwardwomen.org. And, of course, in addition to this event, your website, I understand Lisa has got a whole plethora of great resources, information about the history of Upward, and a look at many of the resources and opportunities for women, not in this chapter, but across the country, and as it grows globally, to meet up, build up, and move up. That's exactly right. It's a great place to go because we actually videography, videotape all of our events. Um, I write blog posts on all of our events. And so there's lots and lots of content available on the website for you to get a feel for what it's like to be at an Upward event. And we've also launched this year an online platform. So it's, it's a way of getting the Upward members in an online community, you know, much like you see with LinkedIn, for example, but specifically for our members. So it's a way to connect when we're not at a physical forum where we can actually uh, network. We can actually network online. And that's a big part of our launch on February 9th as well. We're enrolling more of our members into the online community called Who Knows for the Upward membership. So there's lots of information you can find. We have a YouTube channel. We have lots of social media, Twitter, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, etc. Um, so you can find out information to join us for this event while their tickets remain. 
and if not this event, for a future event in the Bay Area or other locales. And again, to get more information, simply log on today to upwardwomen.org. That's upwardwomen.org. And our thanks to founder Lisa Lambert for being with us. Lisa, thanks so much for the time. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here. Here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flint. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.